All right, perfect. So it is 6.30-ish on, on a Thursday afternoon. I made, uh, I made the run into town here. I'm at Episcopal High School uh, with Mike Donnelly. We've actually been sitting here talking for 20 minutes. <laughs> Hopefully we haven't spoiled the whole thing. Um, you know, I, I was telling Mike, and I don't think he believed me at, at first, I made my list of, of 15 people. I was just telling him this again. That of the 15 people I wanted to interview for this podcast, uh, you know, I told my wife, I'm, it, this thing's got a shelf life. I'm going to interview these 15 people. I'm going to put, put a bow on it, put it on the shelf, and I'm, I'm done with it. All right, that's all I want to achieve. And, and, and Mike's number three on the list. Um, and, w- and what's interesting about that is Mike's been around a, you know, a long time for me, right? We, what I love about you, and, and we've already hit on it, what I love about you is no matter what I go to, whether it's shootout for soldiers or sevens or, you know, what, whatever's, go, box, whatever's going on, right? You always bump into Donnelly, right? And, and I love that. And, and it, yeah, exactly. Well, and that plays into what we were just talking about, right? Your, your, your passion for the sport, right? And, and, and it, that's obvious. I, I remember, God, I think it was like two or three years ago at sevens, it was brutal cold. And it was the night before, it was probably 9.30 or 10 at night, and you and I were out there hanging up nets. <laughs> and it was just miserable, right? Yes. Um, but that's good stuff. Well, God, actually, I was... along that line, Drew played on my first team. Really? Yes, at ROB. I didn't know that. Yes. So, well, that's awesome. Yes, so uh, that connection. Yeah, yeah, that's a great connection. Um, you know, I've been here since 81. I have a lot of connections. <laughs> There's not too many people who come through that I haven't met. The problem is, do that? Do I remember their names? Because my mind is shot. So let's. Oh, what happened here? Just one sec. One of them's not working. Gosh darn it. I see your light on. I'll shoot here. I'll stop this for a second. All right. Perfect. Now I see both of them working there. Cool. Much better. So we're we starting right. over? Yeah. All right. Well, I'll cut that no, piece fine. out. That's fine. Yeah, it's a little dead space. I don't space care what you there. do. Yeah. It's all good. Hey, if they don't want to listen to it, they don't have to listen to it, right? Who cares? Gosh. So, uh, real quick, I want to go back to like where you came from, how you got to Texas. But as we were talking about a second ago, I want to fast forward to 1981. And I want to talk about the the men's club scene in 1981, right? So so fill us in before 81, where you came from, how you got here. But man, let's get to the good stuff, right? All right. I grew up on Long Island in Huntington Station. I went upstate through Potsdam, played college ball there. Moved from there to Wisconsin for a year and a half. Too cold, hated it. But I played lacrosse there too. And then uh, came down here and because my cousin was working at Shell and he happened to see in the paper that there was a a lacrosse league and I played in the last game of the year that season in 1981, and I've played 
pretty much ever since. And that's when I started meeting so many of the great people I've met. So when, when you got here in 81, right? I mean, what, how did you find a lacrosse team in 81? Was it, was, well, it, was it that big? Did it just jump up and hit you in the face? There, back then, uh, the teams were, there were, the club teams traveled. So there were teams in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. And there were about four teams, if I remember right, in Houston. And I connected with probably the, less, the lesser one, just because they had advertised in the paper and my cousin saw it the first week I was here. Um, and I played in the last game and I still remember, it's funny, what, you know, anybody who's played, you remember snippets of your life playing and it was the first game down here and I remember what I did. I remember scoring a bunch of goals against Coors, which was the top team. We lost in overtime and I remember catching a pass, face dodging the goalie, like going no angle, shooting and hitting the pipe and we lost. So, it, you know, it was bittersweet, but I had, you know, I had done well enough to uh, then switch teams and the club, you know, and, the, and we were talking off air, the club scene back then was wild. I mean, the players. So, the, so in, in that, in, I, sorry to interrupt, but I want, I want to go back to the, that first game were there, and I'm going to call them characters because most of them are, yeah. were there characters there in that game that you played against in that very first game here that are, are people we still know and talk about now? Um, I mean, were that Us, you know, Danny Lipnick, I don't think coaching still, but he had played at Harvard and he was on the team I was on and that was fun because he was such a nice player. I know Dan from yeah. uh, JHYLA. So uh, yes. I think he's associated with the Stratford organization, oh, sure. right? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Danny's a great guy. And yeah. he, he had, you know, the Joe Namath brace on his knee, and he actually was from my hometown, the other high school. So it's a small really? world. Uh, Jeff O'Donnell, who ref down here for years. Um, Jerry Dickey, who ref down here for years. Uh, there was a lot of guys who were the... Uh, Jim Perryman... A lot of guys who, in fact, he was the one who was running that club. Uh, a lot of guys <coughs> who laid the groundwork. You know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of big names that have played down here. And then there's a lot of people behind the scenes who've done a lot of the heavy lifting. And, you know, like Dave Vollmer was, down, uh, was on course, I think, then. I, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. And he's been coaching all these years, and he's like the elder statesman and a class act. Yeah, yeah. Been coaching at Lamar, I think, For, all those years, right? Yeah. I mean, I mentioned Drew Webb when we talked about the Sevens tournament. Uh, probably, sorry, everybody else, the best player I ever coached who played with Drew at ROB was a guy named Jim Weiss, and he played for... Dave and was, I believe, a two-time All-American, as was Drew here for Pete Lally. Um, but these guys were unbelievable, and they were great coaches. 
So what the you know the men's scene here right now is it's it's a wreck. I mean I'm yes. I'm probably not telling anyone no. anything they don't know. And and honestly, when I look at it, I don't think it's there's context for it, right? And and the context is, in my opinion, it's not just men's league that's a wreck. I think to some extent the sport here locally is it's a bit of a mess, right? I'm not arguing. What, what back then though? I mean, when different. you when you I, landed here and 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 you jumped right in and it it was awesome, well, tell, right? What was tell, the difference? I think, I think the difference is when I came down here, um, there there were there had been an economic boom. I think I got here the day after it. Uh, everybody down here, you know, had come from New York, Ohio, Michigan, you know. Somewhere other than here. I think the first year I was here, I literally met five people from Houston. No lie. And so we were a bunch of young guys looking for something to do who didn't have families. And Club Lacrosse was our way to network and meet people. And it was so, so much fun because, you know, the guys I played with in the 80s I mean, my, my club team here would have killed my college team and it would have killed most of the college teams we played. And I played, um, you know, upstate New York, that the SUNY deal. So, you know, some really good teams like Clarkson, which wasn't SUNY, but, you know, they were like number five in the nation. We would have given them a game, probably beaten them. Um, it was just unbelievable with the guys we had. And I think it was... Again, because all these guys moved down here and it was a way to have fun. And, you know, how do you not have fun when one of the teams is Coors, sponsored by Coors? Uh, the team I played for, for a good percentage of the time was Boardwalk Beach Club. And I ended up work bartending there, not knowing anything about bartending. But my good friend Marty Whipple arranged that when I was in graduate school. And that's where I met my wife. So we all had a great time. Uh, that's, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting perspective because one of the things I contend right now, and it, I see it with officials, coaches, men's league, is the Houston economy for the last six or eight years has kind of been in the tank, right? We're directly tied to oil. And well, well, think about the guys who are playing club now. Most of them played high school here. Yeah. Maybe played some form of college but I don't think they grew up with loving it and being into it like we were you know again the 80s is a little different than a uh, time than it is now you know we didn't have all these diversions that so many of these kids like the kids I coach you know they do things I didn't conceive of doing as a kid you know socially and travel wise and everything else so you know, what I did as a kid was I took my stick and pounded a wall or went and shot because that's what I had to do. Or that's what was there for me to do. These kids, you know, they all have cars, they all have credit cards, and that's great for them. It's a whole different world. Right. And, you know, I watched it with my 22-year-old daughter. Um, so this is just the way it is. But... The, you know, my generation, we grew up, this is what we did. And we, you know, we were invested in it, I think, a, a little bit more. So how long, 
So that's 1981 is when you started. How, down how, here. Down here, yeah. right, in the men's league. How, how long did you play? I know the answer I started is, is up to now, right? But that, that competitive version of men's league that you described, yeah. you know, it started. But when did I when stop did, playing the really competitive? Well, but when, when did that exist, right? Uh, 80s and 90s. Um, like in 1987, we went to Chicago with a team and played in the Midwest Club Championships and won it. And um, who was on that team? You know, uh, Marty, I believe, Peter, Jen, uh, Doc Dunmire, um, Terry Gilmore, I believe. Um, you, when you said Pete, you met Marin? Yeah. Is he on that team? I'm pretty sure. Awesome. Yeah. Um, guy named Craig Eller, Turtle. Um, it was a high point of my lacrosse career. Really? Yeah, I was... Um, Oh, it was pretty, it was fun. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. Um, in fact, the funny thing was I was given a uh, Michelob Knight, you know, painted, painted stick. And I was so excited. Got home, put it on my mantle. And my wife goes, what are you doing? That's not sitting there. So that was, you know, that was the dose of humility. But, you know, honestly, I came down here from a small school that I was playing with a lot of these guys from big time schools. And I wondered if I could compete. And then that was the thing that proved that I could, you know, and, and that was fun. Uh, the defensive MVP, I played at Hopkins. He was the goalie oh, for wow. uh, the Ohio State team. So it was kind of fun for our yeah. team to beat, yeah, yeah. A, you know, beat legitimate Chicago teams that had some Cornell players on them. So we, you know, like I said, we it was serious lacrosse down here. As I mentioned earlier uh, to you, like Jerry Byrne left here and then played in the MLL when that was founded. So, I mean, here you have a guy who went and, you know, also tried out for the USA team a couple times. So there were some big time players down here. Glenn Miles played for San Antonio and he was on the world team. So, you know, we... I, that just blows me away, man. Yeah, yeah, it's not like it is now. Now, that that's, why I'm, that's why I'm mildly amused because I, you know, with the way club has gone now, there's, you know, some great players still, but not a roster full of them. Yeah, it, it's thin. You're exactly right. It's thin, and it... it what you see generally right now in the men's oh, league nice. is, is a team pop-up. It survives for a couple of years because there's somebody with a little bit of interest. Right. right, He attracts guys. It goes away. Right, A new team pops up. Yeah. A new team pops up. Right, And you kind of see that, that group gravitate to that team. Right, And there, there is a bit of a cycle to it, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. I mean, honestly, it's a lot more fun to play with guys who are good. You know, playing with Peter Marin and Marty Whipple and Terry Gilmore and, and you know, guys like that make it more fun. You know, it's nice when you cut the balls right there as opposed to, you know, maybe the guy's head is down looking at his feet and, you know, then you get pounded and you're like, why am I out here again? You know? So, so you said that was... 
So after 87, it still was good. For it was still good. Decade. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, it really started going downhill when my generation decided to stop. Like I told my wife I would stop playing. I was going to retire when my daughter was born. She's 22. And, and you're still playing. Uh, I still play once in a while, you know, go play in Vale, like I just played in the 60s and up. Um, I love to play. You know, the joke at my house is my daughter someday will be married and she'll say, look, there's your grandfather out there. He's the one with the walker. Ooh, he scored. <laughs> I hope I can still score, you know, but... Uh, yeah, that's an inside joke. I like to shoot. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. So, got to 87, right? And then you said there were still 10 good years, right? Oh, yeah, about that. So, and I, I, maybe more, but it's, it's a little different now. I just, you know, it's just now I really think these younger guys, especially because they've grown up here, they have, you know, they're more likely to have other interests too. And that, means maybe they decide not to play. You know, there was a lot of times when maybe I could have, could have done something else on a weekend, but yeah, I'm on this team. And honestly, there were guys, if I didn't show up, who would take my spot and I might yeah. never get back on the field. And, you know, I was playing with guys, like I said, like a Marty Whipple, who was pretty cutthroat. I remember a goalie showing up and not playing too well the first day and Marty... Didn't tolerate it. Let's just say. So, the so now when you when you bump around men's league, right? And you know this. Everybody you bump into in men's league almost coaches here locally, in one capacity or the other. It feels like everybody's coaching. Well, a lot so, of people, yeah. So so back then, you know, Whipple and Byrne and Marin, were and you we were y'all coach. coaching no, back then? No, 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 no. I um, like uh, Peter had a business that took up a lot of his time. Marty. Um, right now has like a, a painting he's a painting contractor um, so he you know he's coached a little bit at Pearland but no none of us were really coaching Marty may have helped here a little bit but Peter Laley he did start coaching here with a guy named Mike Shade and you know really built Episcopal's program uh, Dave Vollmer got into it so some people. So there was did. a few, but it wasn't. You know, I got into teaching, and I was in HISD in elementary school. And honestly, I went to a St. John's practice. I think with Scooter Settle, he asked me to come and help, and like three guys showed up, and I decided, you know, I'm teaching at an inner city school, and I could be doing something with these kids, or come here, and nobody seemed to care. Nobody showed up, so I said, "Now nah, do that," and I did that until I, uh, Peter Lally recruited me to come and help here because I refed. And when my daughter was born, I started refing to make, you know, some money. So when were you, when, what years were those? When were you officiating? 96. I, I refed for one year. Really? I was, I was uh, teaching in HISD. I had been in sales. I quit teaching for a while. Um, and then I decided, you know, I want to see my daughter. I want to be at home, have a life. And then I started refing a little bit in the spring, and Peter talked me into coaching with him. And 
because of that, you know, the guys, Drew Webb's uh, brother was on our team, and Drew and Jim Weiss and the Gibbs brothers and a bunch of these great players, little sixth graders, you know, I kind of took an interest in them. And, you know, they would come up to me and I'd give them stuff to do and, you know, help them with, uh, you know, hey, no, do, you know, you got to work on your left hand, you got to do right. blah, blah, blah. And because they were getting attention, you know, I think their parents were happy. And next thing I know, they talked ROB, River Oaks Baptist School, into hiring me. So I felt guilty and switched, but it was, uh, you know, it was great because my daughter ended up going there and. So you were you were coaching with Pete before for that? For three years. Here? Yeah, part-time. And what year was that? Or what years? Uh, like 97, 8, 99, or 98, 99, 2000. Okay. Right. I, uh, so my last year, yeah. I helped him here and had started teaching and coaching at ROB. Okay. And then... Um, Did they have a program there at ROB? At our, uh, you know what? I had the first really legitimate team, I think you would say. Jimmy Brooks... Had like a, you know, it started like a club team there. He he was a parent, and Jimmy Brooks helped me here. He had played at WNL. He was great, and he had helped Peter here. Uh, so he he was another guy, you know, who, you know, there's so many guys who moved down here for oil and gas who were great lacrosse players, but uh, yeah, Jimmy was a class act. So I ended up taking over for him because I could be full time there. And um, so your daughter ended up going there as well. Yes, she did, and then she ended up going here, and that's why I switched to being the girls' coach when she. So you went from coaching boys at Robs, and when she came no, here, no, I went to coaching boys at Robs, and then I was hired to be the coach here. Uh, okay. And uh, in two thousand and five, so I've been here fifteen years, and I guess eight years ago. When my daughter was coming in, the girls' coach left, and I was the I was the boys' coach here. With Connor Cook was my assistant, and he was great. Yeah, Connor's great. So I, I guess you'd say, orchestrated Connor becoming the head coach here, and I became the girls' head coach, and that lasted for six years, and now I'm back to being the boys' coach. So what? I mean, everything. All of all I've talked about with folks, right, is the boys' game, really, right? So you've you coached the girls' game here locally for six game. years, yeah, right? I loved it. So what's what's the girls' scene like here in Houston? I, th I, you know, I think what we used to say, and they might be mad at me, but you know, I've been out of it for a few years now, but I always thought they were a little bit behind the curve compared to the guys, but I think they're catching up, you know, with the they might have actually passed it. I, you know, I don't want to upset a bunch of women. Uh, but, you know, it's great. The girls love it. You know, my daughter absolutely loved it and just finished her college career. Uh, we had some great girls go through here, like Sydney Dupree went through here and was captain of Florida, and they were number one in the nation at some of the times she was captain. So we've had, you know, big-time girls go through Big time boys like you know, like I said, Drew Webb, uh, Jim Weiss, Max Skibber, Max Hudson. Max. Those guys were studs. Yeah, yeah. Michael Littner, Matthew Littner, Ryan Prouty, yeah, yeah. all studs. Uh, 
So we've been very fortunate, you know, as a state, we're sending really nice players out of state to play in college. The problem is we don't have enough of them. That's why, you know, that, that's where we're at in both boys and girls. We have some great players, like a lot, you know, Northwestern's girls program or women's program has uh, like four St. John's girls. Yeah, I remember. And, you know, Angie Kensinger was an incredible coach, had an incredible program. So how many, and I apologize because I don't have any frame of reference really, or current frame of reference. How many girls varsity teams are there right now in Houston? That I don't know, honestly. I'm sorry to say. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know all these boys teams existed because in the eight years I was done, you know, teams sprung up left and right. So the sport is growing exponentially. And, you know, the big problem in Texas with the sport, obviously, is the fact that any public school, it has to be a club. Right. And what really ruins it is these athletic directors at these clubs or in these at these club schools don't allow the teams often to use the high schools, which I don't understand how it works because we pay taxes and these are kids that go to the high school, but somehow, you know, they get away with that. Now, as you know, Friendswood is fantastic about letting them use it. Pearland lets them do it. Um, but some of these schools, like Lamar, they've had a lacrosse team for 30 some odd years and they play, you know, at South Campus. That's a shame. Yeah, it is. Uh, Woodlands doesn't get to play there and they've had the best team in Houston for what, a decade? Uh, yeah, it's very, and I think Taylor and I talked about this, right? It's, there's no, it's not institutionalized, right? So it's all on personal relationships. Yeah, me and the head coach and the AD at the high school go way back. So, right, we get access to such right. and such. But I mean, right? think about how sad that is. Football drives most of these schools. Football is being, um, is shrinking due to the parents thinking it's, you know, of concussions and, you know, they're all worried. So lacrosse is booming, yet I guess these administrators are losing sight of the fact that it's about the kids. Right, it's supposed to serve the kids, right. right? Now, where I'm lucky, our athletic director, when Peter was here and I helped, was a gentleman named Dick Phillips, and, you know, he... If you look up the word athletic director or words athletic director, it's probably got his picture. And he was all for, you know, being equitable. He was a classiest act. So our program has always been well-funded. And, you know, we've always had field space. And, you know, Episcopal has been great, as has Kincaid and St. John's. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's a shame that it's, you know, that's the biggest thing that's different. Like where I grew up, you know, on Long Island, every school was good at usually something or, but it wasn't just football. You know, my school was really good at lacrosse for a while. You know, it was really good at basketball. It's big into wrestling and all the schools, you know, whatever, 
they chose to pursue, or you know, there was no one sport was king tut. Right. And that that made it and makes it difficult down here, and you know, with baseball being so big too. Do you think you mentioned the growth of lacrosse, and do you think it's good growth? And and what I mean by that is, what I think I see with with the way THSL is organized, and I'm not blaming it on them, I just think the way it's organized, it allows you to see it more clearly. If you look at the high end, we haven't seen a lot of new D1 teams in years. Friendswood, Seven Lakes. And Seven Lakes is about to drop out of that top right. tier, right? Um, but you do see growth, right, in D2 and D3, whether it's by teams falling out the bottom, right, dropping down through the divisions, or just new teams kind of hanging around two and three. So I guess my question is, is it good growth? Is it healthy? I think we were talking about this the other day when we had that, you know, coaches meeting. And there's a lot of, I think, frustration with Dallas, for example. And it seems, and I don't know this for a fact, because again, I haven't paid attention to the boys' side enough recently. A lot of these teams know that they can't compete with the top few teams in Dallas, but they're really good, so they want to stay in D2. I mean, Cy Fair used to be notorious for, you know, like you, you, when Taylor Brooks played there and that team had seven kids going to play in college, it was absurd that they were playing D2. But their coach at the time told me that his parents just wanted to win a state championship. They didn't care. Of, you know, which division. And, you know, it's incumbent upon coaches to do the right thing. And I, and I think the other night at our meeting, they were trying to, you know, statistically quantify reasons that put you in one division or another, you know, program size, you know, wins, losses, those types of things. I think when that happens, you know, it'll be better. You know, all right, most of us can't compete with the Woodlands. Right. All right. So that doesn't mean knee-jerk reaction, I got to go to Division, you know, 5A or, you know, I mean, uh, 2 or something, or right. 3 or 4. Now, ironically, we were placed in... Um, 3A, which is, you know, there's 4A, 3A, 2A in their new model. So I don't know if we're going to stay there or try to move up. Um, but that is, you know, I'm willing to, I told Joe Donahue, the commissioner, he called me. I told him I'm willing to go where you put me if it's based on, you know, logic. I don't care. Right. I really don't. Because, you know, like the year we went to the Final Four in the um, boys, the year I, my 2010 team, we were great. And we played great, and we ended up losing 1915 in a unbelievable game to St. Mark's. You know, there was no shame, you know. Right. And when I took a girls team to the Final Four, we ended up losing to St. John's. You know, they were just state champs. You know, it happens. 
but you know you can't move up and down because all right I don't have Max Skibber anymore so now I'm going to be not so good or I don't have Drew what well I didn't or you know you can't move up according to that it should be you're a full-fledged program with this number of people and this amount of support and you know then let's do it that way do you think the I mean, do you think those divisions are useful? I was saying, I sent Joe something, and I don't know if it makes sense, because I didn't really think it out, but Drew Hewitt had mentioned something about why do we need Dallas? And my thought was, why not? We play whomever we want in town. And like Lax Power used to do, they rank the teams due to a statistical analysis and at the end of the year the top eight are playing division maybe for this and maybe the next eight play for that and everybody else is out of luck and then the best team the best top eight in you know from Houston Dallas San Antonio and Austin maybe play for all the marbles you know but Dallas always I gather wants to see if they can get as many people in the bracket and, and it ends up being a Dallas team playing a Dallas team, right? which is fine. But I, I would be annoyed as a Dallas coach if I beat, let's say, St. Mark's two or three times during the season, but they beat me in the last game. It's hard to beat somebody three or four times in a row. Yeah, yeah. But again, I don't really care. Honestly, it's well, not about the state championship because so few teams are really in the running. For yeah, them. well, I mean, the, the trophy's just not that big, too, right? No. Who cares? <laughs> I can show you, actually, when I was at RLB the first year, I had the greatest collection of talent ever known to me. And I had 14 boys on that team, and five went on to be All-American somewhere. And I thought I was the greatest coach. I mean, uh, my, you know, I wasn't probably too smart back then. I didn't realize I had the greatest collection of type A studs known to man because I never, you know, that was that one-time deal. But they gave me, uh, back then there was a guy named Cliff Netterville who ran the, the junior high league and he arranged for us to have a state championship game against St. Mark's. And really? We, yes. At the they, junior high level? Yes, and they came, <laughs> they came down, and we had like 500 people at the game. It was incredible. And they, what year was this? Uh, I want to say 2000. I can go get the trophy, which is a box with like a... It's the funniest thing you'll ever see. And there were 500 people in oh, this game. Oh, God, it was unbelievable. But anyway, St. Mark's, it was so funny. We had played them in a little junior high tournament, I don't know, St. John's or something, and... You know, I had my, I, I coached an eighth grade team and a seventh grade team, and I had both teams combined for that day. So we lost because I played everybody, you know, because they're there on Saturday and I didn't care. So they were pretty, yeah, we'll come down and play. And, you know, they were going to beat us because they'd beaten us that game. Well, I played my eighth graders in that game, and I moved Drew to Midi and Jim to attack. And Jim went off on them, and they had no. Um, Jim was never lost a race at any distance. I coached him in basketball and lacrosse. I think the greatest athlete I've ever coached, and um, we beat them easily. And again, I thought I was the greatest coach. 
It's funny, I <laughs> thought I had all the answers years ago. Then my daughter was born. And I suddenly realized, I'm in. As, as she grew up, I realized, God, I'm stupid. <laughs> you know, it's funny how s smart we think we are when we're, you know, 20 some odd years younger. And I'm, I'm always amused at how little I knew. I drove those, I had, here's how dumb I was back then. If their shoes weren't tied, two miles. If they didn't have their reversible, two miles. If they weren't wearing like a jacket and it was cold out, two miles, because I didn't want them to get sick and hurt the team. You know, everything was two miles. Now I would never in a million years do that to them. But back then, and it was funny, the kids ate it up. But you know, that's what's great, honestly, about coaching little kids. They're often, they don't know. You know, these high school team kids, they would probably hit right. me with a stick upside my head if I tried to pull that. Well, I remember, um, I mean, my son Dylan, right, his fondest memories are playing for, for John Prouty in seventh and eighth grade, right? And John was pretty and serious. He was, but he was such a tremendous leader of, yeah. of boys of that age yeah. where you would look at these seventh and eighth grade boys, right? And I knew I could look at my son and go, if John tried to lead him to the gates of hell, this little seventh grader, he would go. Yeah. Right? Well, I, I, you know, I was having this conversation with our strength coach here earlier today. I know we're so politically correct nowadays, we don't tell the kids the truth. I am not politically correct. I'm pretty blunt and pretty much tell the kids, you know, in a nice way, but, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. And kids appreciate that. We forget that these, especially at this school, for example. You know, this school is an elite private school. These are smart kids. Right. So, you know, they know the score. They know if they're trying or not. Well, and they're, uh, I've had this discussion with lots of people over time, right? You know, these kids at these private schools, they're, they're meat eaters, right? Like you said, they're type A personalities. Not at this school necessarily. No? No, St. John's for sure. I mean, our school, too, you know, but they're kids who definitely have some advantages. And the beautiful thing is, though, when you find kids who want to work. Like my lacrosse team right now, I have some of the best kids because they're throwback kids. They absolutely love it. I have this kid, Jack Carpenter, and another Cameron Thornton, and... Uh, Gannon and um, Mason Morris. These guys just absolutely eat, sleep, you know. This kid, Caldwell Graham, he was outside running sprints earlier on his own. They just love it. So if we get more of those kids, you know, we as coaches have to inspire that. Right. Because, you know, nowadays... You know, most people are saying, oh, you know, go play a video game or, oh, it's too hot outside. You can't go outside and play. That's ridiculous. Um, and, and so, you know, I just absolutely love having kids who want to compete. And, you know, I just want more of them. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a perfect lead-in because I, I took notes when we were talking earlier and 
and, and, and you did it really eloquently earlier before we turned that. the mics on oh. when you were, you were talking about you were you were tying jazz and lacrosse together <laughs> well, so I, I want to go back to that oh yeah, yeah. well listen I, I majored in music in college my dad was a music uh, teacher he had actually taught at the college I went to before I was born um, he's a great trumpet player so you know, like my daughter had a lacrosse stick in her hands, probably from a young age. I had a trumpet in my hands. So when I didn't go to college on a lacrosse scholarship, my dad, I came home one day and I said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm applying to Potsdam for you. And then I had a trained school of music, which was prestigious school. And so, yeah, all right. Um, you know, it's not like now where you have all these counselors helping you. Right. I mean, you know, I was naive. I was pulled out of class by West Point uh, about going there to play lacrosse. I was a hippie at the time, so that wasn't going to fly for me or them. But, I mean, I was so stupid. I thought I was going to go play somewhere big time. And so I didn't apply. And then um, my dad did, and so I auditioned and apparently did well enough to get in. And did that, but I, you know, I, I was actually, this is how I started playing college lacrosse. It was a D3 program, and it was new. And um, I saw them practicing, and I said, hey, you know, I'm majoring in music, so I can't really be part of your team, but can I come out and work out with you guys when I can? Sure. And like five minutes in, they're like, oh, yeah, you come when you can, and just make sure so you didn't start games. playing until college. No, I played in high school. Oh, okay. I started in 1970. Okay, all right. No, but I mean, that's when I got, you know, I wasn't going to play in college. I thought that yeah, shit yeah, gotcha, gotcha. And, you know, it, it was, my, my college team, my first year was really good because we had some players, but then I can't really... <laughs> I'm not going to go into those stories, but a few things happened, and suddenly we didn't have all those players. <laughs> it was a different day. A few things happened. Well, one guy ended up realizing he would get arrested if he came back. Um, I think he had a side business. There was a lot of drugs back then, but uh, he was a great player. So when you were, when you were teaching, were you teaching music? No, I ended up, when I moved down here, I worked for Coca-Cola. And um, the one day I missed, I went and I stopped at uh, U of H and asked a professor named Dr. Went, um, you know, could I get a bachelor's in phys ed? Because I had graduated. I ended up switching majors my senior year so I could play college lacrosse four years. I would have had a student teacher and it wouldn't have worked. Oh, so, right. so I had a psych degree. So she, I stopped by there and just luckily stopped by on the right day and I said, could I get a uh, bachelor's degree in PE if I wanted to? Because a good friend of mine was teaching down here, PE from my high school. And uh, she said, why don't you get a master's? I, well, I can do that? And she said, yes. So. I called up Coke, I quit. <laughs> Started that day. I didn't know how I was gonna eat. Um, that's, that's why I got really lucky when Marty uh, 
Whipple said to the boardwalk, the manager, she was our scorekeeper, and I didn't know her, but I had scored a lot of goals, so she knew my name. And Marty goes to her, you gotta get Mike a job there. He, you know, he's in graduate school and needs a job, because I was washing dishes at a, at a Mexican food restaurant in Sharpstown Mall, if you can imagine that. Um, so he got me that job, and you know, the first, you know, well, I can't even go into those stories, but um, it was fun, and it was a really good hangout for lacrosse players because the beers were really cheap. If you get my drift, <laughs> <laughs> it was the hangout. You know, I don't know if you, you're probably not old enough, but that was the hottest bar in town for a while. And there was a, uh, one in Dallas, and they sponsored the Dallas team. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And to even make the story better, uh, the owner of that bar, his kid played for me here years later. And I wasn't, um, I wasn't necessarily the greatest role model in 1983. <laughs> I have matured a lot. <laughs> so... You know, it's kind of funny. I said to him years later, well, let's just warm your heart having me coach your kids. But, you know, I've, I've matured a lot. Um, so we, we were talking earlier about uh, over, the overcoaching that goes on. Oh, yeah. Right? And, and I think we started to touch on it when you were talking about the influence of your daughter. Jazz. Yeah, right? and my daughter, yeah. I mean, I, and, I, and I want to go back to that because I, I, I'm a firm believer in overcoaching. You and I said the exact same thing as we were sitting here talking, right? My best game as a coach is a, a game where I don't say a word, right? So, um, you know, you started to touch on your daughter's influence and Jazz's influence on that, but maybe talk about overcoaching and, and how you kind of arrived at that, right? right. Uh, I taught elementary phys ed in inner city schools for seven years. I had 60 kids at a time, typically. Little kids. So if you weren't organized, you were in trouble. But I realized that at, you know, at an early time in my career, they got to have fun. If it's not fun, they're not going to buy into it. And I'm a big believer. That's why you know, those of us old guys love lacrosse. We've had so much fun playing it. If it's just drills and just scripted plays and you know you pass the ball now you got to cut here and do this and do that and pick away and you know we you know run them everywhere and no you didn't run it right why would they play you know once upon a time you know I'm 62 when I was a kid and went out and played you know we just went out and played right. And there was no literally telling us how to play. And we figured out, I want Johnny on my team. I don't want Joey on my team. And, you know, and we figured it out. And, oh, yeah, Johnny's great at this. So you do that. You play this position. You know, like the great game when I was a kid was kickball when I was little because you learned all the strategy. And so we didn't need our dads telling us how to play. And nowadays, most of these kids start at a young age, like you see it in soccer especially, at such a young age, and they're just like little automat you know, little robots out there. 
And that's why I think we have 70% of the 13-year-olds quitting organized sports, which is the statistic I have. Um, you know, luckily it's not that here, but in you know the vast population, it's not worth it to kids to be yelled at. I think I want to teach kids how to play the game. So if they go to your team or to a pickup game or to a club team, they know how to play. Like when I played with Marty and Peter and you know Gilmore and Littner and all those guys over the years, we didn't put in plays. Right. You know it was like. All right, Peter's playing behind, I'm playing the crease, Marty's playing midi, Dave's playing D. And, you know, when Marty had the ball, I was smart enough to move where he was going to see me. And when Peter had the ball, I was smart enough to move where he was going to see me. I didn't need somebody drawing, taking out a crayon and, you know, drawing a roadmap for me. And, and obviously none of us did. But now we somehow think these kids do. And why would that be fun? We've taken away the creativity. <clears throat> like we had a game we won this year, or this last season. There was, I think, like eight seconds left on when the penalty was called. And I had a, I had two D men on man up. And I said, you know, I said to one of them running by because there was no timeout, Jack, go to the crease and tell Gannon to pass it to you. And Gannon throws a behind the back pass Jack, the D-man, catches it and goes behind the back, and we win 8-7. Guess friends would. And, <laughs> and they went nuts. Uh, but I think I heard about this game. <laughs> but it was, it was unbelievable. But that, now that to me is fun. Now, you know, I think Gannon said to me, what would you have done if I'd missed? I, was, I said, you know, I wouldn't have been too happy. But you know what? At the time, it made sense. Yeah. And I've been known to take a few creative shots in my day, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite and go nuts. Now, I don't like going behind the back or some of this around the world just, or through the legs just to say, look what I can do. Right. But, uh, you know, Jack scored. He, you know, the goalie came towards the stick and he went around the goalie backhand and Gannon, by throwing that backhand pass, Caught everybody by surprise. So it was a phenomenal play. I wish I could have taken credit for it. All I could take credit, I literally had a parent from friends would go to me, uh, Coach, did you practice that? <laughs> I said, I wish. And I told my team after that game, I said to him, uh, I told Jack to go to the crease and tell Gannett to pass, jam it in there. I wish I had told him to go behind the back. Then I would have really been a good coach. So, so how how has that how does that philosophy influence like your practice design, the way about you, the way you go about just the day to day stuff right now with the team, and how has that changed over time? I'm not sure it's changed that much, which maybe hurts us. Uh, I like doing a lot of. Uh, numbers type things. I like doing a lot of stuff where the offense learns to move the ball. I hate watching hero ball where one guy tries to run through 12 people or 13 or 14 or however many they want to run through. Uh, it's absurd. So I want 
my guys to learn, you know, draw somebody, move the ball. And so I like to do a lot of that. I like to, you know, compete. And I like to make it fun. I want guys who want to come back. I, the one thing I don't want is, oh man, we have practice today. I don't want to, I don't want to practice. Like the thing I love doing most is box. I've done box down here since the late 90s. And I'm always amused listening to people pretend like it's some new invention. We did it in the 70s in high school. That's what John Prouty said the exact same thing. He goes, you feel like you've developed this methodology down here. And it's this, not is, a methodology. This, this is what we've been doing forever growing up. It's a lot of, you know, soccer does the same thing with their f futsal. It's if you have a lot of touches, like my friend, our soccer coach is unbelievable. Um, you know, he was counting his son's soccer practice. I think his son touched the ball something like seven times in two hours. Then they, then he organized a little group. And they played for like an hour, and the average touch was fifty. Okay. You know, because it was a five-on-five five game. You know, box lacrosse is the way to go. I tried to get my school here to um, find a way to give us a like rink outside and you know my argument has always been field hockey girls lacrosse soccer could all benefit from this but you know logistically i guess it's difficult to pull off but that should be the trend you know that's why can canadians are so good at lacrosse because they play small-sided games in hockey rinks, and their stick skills are phenomenal. I mean, and as I'm sure John alluded to, this isn't like me making this up. This right. has been around forever. It's just existed, right? Indians, little games, small-sided games, you know, that's why the Iroquois are so good. This is not rocket science. I wish I could pretend I'm some creative genius coach but like I said earlier, I learned in about 2000, I'm not. I'm really good. Well, I like to think I'm really good when I have really good players. <laughs> and I'm really good if I have more good players than your team. <laughs> but when I don't, you know, I try my best. And that's, you know, and, and you know, the other thing that probably hurts lacrosse nowadays is, you know, so many Coaches and parents have lost their minds watching games, screaming at their kids, you know, driving their kids from the sport. Like I know a kid who was unbelievable, who didn't play in college. And, you know, it was just, just wasn't fun anymore. And that to me is absurd. You know, we have to, like, there is nothing greater. The greatest joy I've ever had in my life is watching my daughter play. But I go stand by myself and talk under my breath to myself, and I don't say anything to her. And, you know, after the game, I don't usually say much other than good game, and maybe I'll make a, one comment and get her talking. Right. But, you know, I'm not going to go there anytime soon and my wife had a great point and 
I think a lot of parents, if any are listening, should keep this in mind if their kids go play in college. My wife said, I have to stop when I call my daughter just talking lacrosse. So you know, I'd ask her how this was going, how that was going, and maybe eventually I'd get around to lacrosse, but I would try really hard not to as the first thing because, you know, it's the, the valuing of the person almost. Right. And um, Do you find yourself taking that approach with the boys you're coaching now too? I try to talk to them about other stuff, yeah. And um, like I have one boy here right now. It's really tough. He's really good. And he wants to play baseball. He's a ninth grader and his brother plays for me. And his brother's really good. But I think it's one of those deals where maybe the younger brother wants to find his own thing. Right. And I have him in class. And, you know, I gave him a hard time. You know, my first thing, the first day in my wellness class, you know, I always had the ninth graders tell me what school they're from and what activities they do. And not just sports, what activities. And if they say baseball, I say, I'm sorry, you fell. And you know, I just move on, softball, I'm sorry, you fell. Uh, lacrosse, oh, you, you get an A. <laughs> you know? And you know, I just mess with them. But you, know, you can't just talk to a kid as they're a commodity. So with this, this guy, um, you know, He's a great player. I hope he ends up playing lacrosse at some point. But he wants to see if he can play baseball. And more power to him. It's just, you know, I'd love to have him. You're so fortunate that, I mean, you, you work here at the school. That you teach huge. at the school, right? That is huge. And, and you get to see these kids yes. during the course of the day, right? Huge. Huge. You're I, so I, fortunate. Honestly, I don't know how Peter Laley, Peter Marin, you... Uh, all these guys who have real jobs, then coach lacrosse. Uh, too much time involved. It's just mind blowing to me. I, you know, Dave Vollmer all those years. Uh, you know, Peter Marin ran a company. Uh, you know, I don't know how people do it. And it just, again, speaks to what we said before, the love of the game. Right. Um, And some people just absolutely love the coach. And, you know, it, it's so funny to me. We're, you know, again, a very fortunate school here, and we have all these parents who have high-powered jobs. And I think so many of them aspire to be coaches, which is amazing to me because coaching in Houston or coaching in Texas is so much of a higher calling according to the population than maybe Long Island. I don't remember us calling our coach coach. My coach was Mr. Zarcon. My high school coach was Mr. Savarese. Here, you know, coach is a honor. And so it's interesting to me. Just it's a different world down here. And I absolutely love it or I wouldn't still be here. I mean, I have no desire to live in New York. I love it down here, but it's just different. Yeah, I was just, I was jealous when I was sitting there listening to you talk about your ability during the course of the day to interact with these kids. Oh, right? you should be. It, look, I've died and gone to heaven working here. 
I mean, this is like a college job. My daughter's college coach had an infinitely worse job than I have here. Um, and uh, I said that John Zoberti, like four-time All-American in Syracuse, I one time said to him when he was doing a camp down here, you know, I was at ROB at the time. I said, I have a better job. I did, you know, because, you know, most college coaching jobs don't pay a lot. And, you know, it's a stepping stone to be big time. Right. You know, these D3 jobs. And these high school jobs at an elite private school like this, I mean, it, it's an honor, really, to be here. Absolutely. It's and, awesome. Oh, yeah. You know, going back to what you were saying, right? Those of us who are working full time. I don't know how you do it. Right, and, and try to coach. You know, we get to, I get to lacrosse season and my poor wife. Doesn't see you. It's a black hole. Well, my wife doesn't see me. I mean, I leave at 6.20 in the morning and might get home at 10 at night. Oh, wow. So, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. Right. You know, I, like, when, when I, you know, the smart businessman who's going to coach, I think, should be an assistant so that they don't have to do the logistical stuff. Because that's what, you know, that's, you know, everybody sees the fun part. The fun part is standing on the sidelines during the game, especially if you win. Well, but if you're, if you're doing it right, and this is, the, the for me, the, the time suck, and I hate to say that because it sounds right. negative, and it's not intended to be negative, right? Right. But the majority of that time is, think about all the other stuff. Yeah, that's if you're, okay. if, you, if you're doing it right, no, even as an assistant, right? right? I'm scouting games. I'm probably right. scouting one or two games a week, easy. I'm watching film on my team, right? I'm developing practice plans, mm -hmm. right? By the time you spend that 90 minutes on the, on the field at practice, right? That's cake. That's the fun part. Yeah, it right? is. It totally is. But, I mean, the reward is the game. Yeah. And the reward, honestly, the real reward is dealing with the kids who are into it. Yep. Now, I think most of us, you know, sometimes would prefer to have maybe a little bit smaller team, just the kids who are into it. But, you know, nowadays kids are playing for different reasons, like resume stuffers and everything else. But it is really fun when the light bulb goes off and, and you can see that they're so into it. I mean, you know, those kids I mentioned before, they would have fit in with my generation. They just absolutely love it. Makes it makes it so rewarding. And obviously it's fun when they have fun. You know, when they're excited and they come right. to my office and, you know, I mean, you know, I've died and gone to heaven. I never expected to coach lacrosse. I never wanted to coach. I had no plans to coach. And thanks to Peter Lally getting me into it. Um, you know, I've gotten to do something I'm most passionate about. The two great joys of my life have been lacrosse, you know, not counting, you know, people, um, lacrosse and jazz. And, you know, getting to make a living teaching and coaching is pretty wonderful. And, you know, I, I'm like most people, I think, I get frustrated sometimes 
And then I was saying to my wife recently, because she just switched jobs, um, every now and then it's good to have perspective, step back and look at how fortunate you are, because we sometimes lose sight of that. And I'm pretty lucky. I, I mean, you know, I'm at a great school. I have kids who love to play. Um, I have support. I have great parents. And the best thing is I've met all these great people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all my, not all, but the majority of my closest friends have been lacrosse people. I mean, my daughter had the greatest college experience because she played lacrosse. And, you know, that enabled her to make some great friends. And my wife has met people through lacrosse. And, you know, you wouldn't be talking to me if it wasn't, you know, we, we, yeah. we've all, you know, there's a camaraderie of lacrosse people in Houston that is just amazing. I mean, you have guys like Steve Mathiason, who's almost single-handedly kept club lacrosse afloat. I mean, he is, you know, you know, he's like a religious, you know, he's trying to convert people, and it's just phenomenal. That's a, that's a good word, <laughs> convert. Yes, but it's great. You know, we need, you know, because he's doing all the dirty work. Yep. The dirty work is organizing it, finding fields and, you know, encouraging people and calling them, you know. I mean, if we didn't have people like him, uh, like Jim Perriman years ago, Joe Donahue, I mean, you know, people get mad at, oh, you know, I, don't, I can't believe, TA, you know, the, the, the league administrators are doing X, Y, or Z. The fact that they're doing it is pretty special. Him and Mike Ormsby, I mean, how nice is it of them to donate all this time? Or, you know, Earl Bill years ago in San Antonio, you know, getting all these teams at Vail. Or now it's Chip Flanagan, or you know Tony Scazzaro has been at A and M since the seventies. Yep. Um, Long time. I don't think people realize that. Yes, I don't think people understand. You know how special, like this guy Cliff Netterville, the one I uh, mentioned earlier. I mean, he put together a, a junior high tournament and was able to get a Dallas team to come down. I mean, how amazing is that? that? I still can't believe that story. That's an incredible story. Oh, it's <laughs> Again, I just can't believe, you know, it's so funny. I can't believe how stupid I was back then. I didn't understand anything. That was my first year coaching. And, you know, you know, you think you know the game. And I'm sure you feel the same way coaching. You know the game. And then when you start coaching the game, it's like, oh, my God. How do I teach this? I've just always done it. Right, exactly. You know? How do I explain this thing that I just kind of figured out? Yes. Um, you know, I think what really helped me, I never was a freak athlete. I think a lot of people would say I'm not even an athlete. So not being gifted athletically, you know, if you don't have any speed, you learn how to, you think it. You know, as, as they've always said, like, the best 
baseball managers often are the guys who weren't too good because they watched a lot. You know, I was fortunate in that I didn't watch a lot, at least from the side, um, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't run by anybody. So then you start figuring it out. And then you figure out, wow, I better be nice to Peter Marin so he'll throw me the ball. Or, you know, you start <laughs> figuring out all this stuff. And how did he get, how did he set that up? Or how did Marty set that up? And next thing you know, you're teaching that to your minis. Or, you know, how right. did uh, David Littner steal the ball from that guy? Oh, all right. You know, or, you know, that's, that's what you got to do. Um, or at least that's what I do. I steal from everybody. You know, I try to, you know, Keith Tinnell, you know, Al Christopher, you got to, you know, they're, they're like the gold standard, you know. So. Yeah, for sure. You know, so you, you listen to them. It's just fun. I, I hope, I think anybody who's this, like you're saying all the stuff you do as a coach, I think any smart coach is constantly sizing up everybody else and stealing drills or yep. stealing ideas. I sat at a, at two ESD games last season, mm -hmm. and I know I look like a total nerd. I'm sure folks were looking at me, what is he doing? And I recorded every aspect on both occasions of ESD's pregame, how they warmed up, what they did, because they did so well. Just the warm-ups, the little things they were doing, right? And the, and, the, and the drills they were using, especially on the defensive end of the field, right? Because that's what I'm interested in. But their little their pregame routine and all the things they did, man, it was so effective and so cool. And here I am out here being a, a nerd, right? Recording that and stealing it from them, right? Hey, well, I guarantee you they stole it from somebody. I mean, everybody I'm, does. Hey. You know, there's no such thing as an original thought that I'm aware of. Well, maybe there is, but I haven't had one. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I just, you know, sadly, like getting back to the like that podcast we were talking, um, we alluded to about soccer. Oh, the Jamie Monroe's, yeah, yeah, the free free play one. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty set in my ways. I do have my core beliefs. And I constantly tweak things. But, you know, maybe I should do more of what you're saying. Maybe I need to watch a little more. Um, I've tended to be a proponent of John Wooden in a lot of ways in that I worry about my team because, you know, if I'm playing ESD, I can watch them all day, but I right. maybe can't stop number eight, number 13, number 15. So, you know, I can scheme a bunch of things, but I'm worrying about my team because at the end of the day, it's hard to know. You know, I'm not sure how predictable a 17-year-old is. You know, and, and you, I mean, most of us, we go watch them. Wow, that mini's great. He's got a 100-mile-per-hour shot. Well, I don't need to watch him for two hours to know I'm right. in trouble. <laughs> you know? Well, and the great part of this game, and I always use the word with my boys, and it, and it plays into what you're talking about with the free play. It plays into all that directly. I use the word volatility with my boys a lot. The game, it's a volatile game. Yeah. And we can sit here and script, and we can draw stuff out, but as soon as two passes are made... All hey, bets are all off. Bets are off. Right. That's right? why. That's why I was saying I have a hard time with the scripting. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I came back to boys lacrosse two years ago, you know, it really almost made me physically ill watching everybody run the ball down. You know, pass it down the side, bang it behind, 
to the other side, hopefully for a time and room shot. That was like everybody's offense. And I don't understand why that's the only offense out there. You know, just, I don't really care, you know, honestly, I don't really care what any of these college teams are doing. I'm going to steal nice stuff from them. Right. But I'm not just doing it because Bill Tierney does it. I mean, if I had, you know, Bill Tierney's, you know, Matt Brown can literally draw up any play his little brain can think of, show it to them, and in two minutes they got it and they can run it. Well, I can't, you know, I said to my assistant head here a couple of years ago, I went to Maryland and watched a girl's, oh, I talked to a girl's coach and she said, did they teach you a lot? Did you learn a lot? I go, honestly, no, because, you know, I've been around the game for 49 years. I've seen most everything. What I did learn, though, is, or what my problem isn't that I can't scheme with them. And, or you can't scheme with them. The problem is, how do you scheme for, well, I got two minis who can catch, but the third can't. Or how do you scheme for, I don't have any really strong lefties, so that kind of makes the left-hand cut a little bit of a tricky proposition. So that's what we as coaches down here do. We, you know, you gotta invent things that work for your players. Right. And I, that's what I'm excited about this year. I have more players. Uh, or at least more, I think they've taken uh, a step. And, you know, that's what we all aspire to, to constantly improve. But as a coach, you know, I'm not running what Notre Dame runs per se. I'm running whatever will work for my guys yep. who are working hard and trying to do what they can do. Got to adapt. Of course. My, the first season I was at Magnolia, I was so lucky. I had, I had the three boys that played close defense and there was such a great mix, right? There was a, there was a, there was two leaders. One was a very quiet leader, a phenomenal athlete. Uh, another was a, a, was a vocal leader and, and smart, smart as I'll get out. Right. And the third was a blunt object, <laughs> <laughs> right? And, you know, typically, you know, the conversation would be with the, the, the brains of the group, right? I need you to set up the blunt object to do this, yes. right? <laughs> and it's it's great to be able to, you know, have that mix of boys, right? And then as a coach, every year adapt, right? Because the, the following year, yeah. I had a completely different right. set of tools, right? Exactly. So I couldn't say, well, this is my defense. Right. Well, right? That, that, that doesn't work. You know, what typically happens is you have, let's say, the stud defense, and no offense, or you have the stud offense, no goalie, or, you know, so it's just, that's what makes it fun, and, right. and honestly, to win a state championship just takes a lot of things coming together, and you just have to be lucky as can be, I think, well, maybe not lucky as can be, but you just have to have a lot of good luck, because you can, you know, have the stud at every position, and if your feeder goes down, or your face-off guy goes down at the wrong time, maybe things don't work out. Yep. Um, so I, I, you know, getting back to like what drives kids away from the sport, I think parents and coaches have to sometimes not look at the bottom line, but look at all the other good things coaches are doing and playing a sport does. Like I think, you know, using my daughter as an example, 
the lessons she learned from lacrosse and playing in college, they will help her immeasurably. And I'm so excited that she played. And I'm very disappointed that more kids don't play because there's a team for just about everybody yep. nowadays. Absolutely. I mean, they, it's hard for them to fill some of these teams, uh, you know, and like a D3 uh, experience is phenomenal. I think D1 is a job. It is <laughs> a know? job. And, I, you know, that's a special, special person who's, you know, but the vast majority of these kids, I think they have their whole life to sit on a bar stool, you know, go play D3, go play club lacrosse, which is like D3 used to be, go play D2. It doesn't matter. Just play. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, think about it. That's what we still like to play. You know, I mean, think about it. We, I think, what, a month ago, we were talking, playing, about to play in a box game. You know, think about how sad that is. I mean, you're what, uh, 10 years younger than me? About to be 49. Oh, no, you're, you're 13 years old. So we're, we're a bunch of old guys who still want to play. But, you know, we shouldn't be out to play. <laughs> you know, we shouldn't be out there. Well, I shouldn't be out there. You can be out there, but, um, but it, you know, it is fun. I, I think it's the, you know, the greatest gift to me was a friend of mine saying, hey, you got to play lacrosse. And, you know, I'd never heard of the game, and I went out for the team. And it was the, the most fortuitous thing that happened to me. Because I, you know, again, my job, my wife, my family, my friends, I mean, and I think most of us who are in this for a lifetime feel the same way, yep. you know? And how great is that? Because it's a pretty special sport. Yep. Yeah. That was awesome. Holy cow. I hope I, hope I didn't uh, stray too No, far. no, that was awesome. That was awesome. That was a good one. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Well, thanks. Um, I appreciate it. That was nice it, it was exactly what I thought it would be. I mean, I, I wanted to sit here and enjoy your passion for the sport, man. Well, and I got to do it for an I, hour and a half, and that was you, awesome. Well, thank you. If, if you talk to Marty, he is the greatest storyteller known to man. Now, honestly, like when I switched to girls, Matthew, uh, Michael Littner... And a few other guys on my team were like, how are you going to coach girls? You can't tell your stories. And, and, and you know, because I always had examples for them. And you can't, like I always, and I say stupid stuff like, the only reason you lob the ball to somebody is if they have a pretty girlfriend. So they get killed and you can steal the girlfriend. You know, I say stupid stuff like that. You know, I, I you know, and that's from my days of doing my little box camps. Because I want you know, a word picture. But Marty, he can go on for hours and hours. I mean, he's one of my closest friends. I can't call him up because it's a two-hour conversation on the phone. I mean, he, he came over to my house, whatever the last holiday was. Everybody came over at 1, and at 10 o'clock, he's still there telling stories. And I've heard them all because I've known him since, like, 83. But... Um, if you want some good stories, you know, yeah, like, I'm gonna uh, catch up national there. flavor, you know, too. 
You know, he could tell you about like Desco and him played together in college, or he can tell you stories about Desco, or you know, he can tell you stories about anybody. You know, and it's funny because he's just a crazy guy. Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm gonna reach out to him. I appreciate it. Yeah. It was good. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate awesome. it.